Hello, friends, and welcome. I'm your co-host, Andrew Lazaga, here with Dubside. And you're listening to the Dubcast with Dubside. Okay, well, we've had quite a nice run of interviews. Uh-huh. Well, you've had a nice run of interviews. And I thought we could go over some comments that people have left. Okay. One listener wants to know if you have read the book Arctic Dreams, Imagine and Desire in a Northern Landscape by Barry Lopez. Yeah, Barry Lopez, yeah. It's, it's been a long time since I read that one. I, I'm trying to remember what it was specifically the points the guy made but I, I i've read that it's just been a long time i should read it again is it do you recommend it i i can't remember <laughs> I, I, I read that with a, a bunch of other books and some of them were were very interesting some of them weren't some were kind of boring but i i think that, i mean the, the guy definitely i think he had a lot of experience in the arctic he knew what he was talking about i've 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 lost track of what exactly he was saying okay and um we're going all the way back to Dubcast number 51 about Emmanuel Corneliuson. Mm-hmm. Elon Harrell, who we've heard from before, left a comment. I get Peninguak. I always feel uncomfortable when I hear Greenland kayak, Greenland paddle, etc. The Inuit call Greenland Kalashlit Nunat. Kalashlit Nunat. Okay, yeah. Kayaks were developed by the Inuit, Yupik, and Alut. They are indigenous to the Arctic but not to Canada and Greenland, where they replaced the Dorset and the Norse. Eric the Red, Norse, founded Greenland in the 10th century. The Dorset existed for 3,000 years in northern Canada and Greenland. The Inuit immigrated from Alaska and arrived in the 13th century to northern Canada and Greenland. Inuit means the people. Inuk is a person, and Inuktut is the language of the Inuk. They live in Inuit Nunangat which means the place where Inuit live. And I think from this comment, he's pointing out that the Norse were in Greenland before the Inuit. And this brings up the whole question of what does indigenous mean in this sense? Yeah, well, I, I, I'm thinking of, maybe I'm incorrect in thinking, the Inuit include the Dorset. So, so in that sense, the Inuit way before the, the Eric the Red showed up, but the the archaeological evidence that I'm familiar with, the, the Dorset culture pretty much died out before was that like 1,000, and and then the 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 current the, the Thule people, that's the current Inuit, they came after Eric the Red was already there. Okay, well, but there, but there were there were indigenous people in Greenland way before you know long before. The Norse got there. They died off or, or stopped being there in between. And then, then the current day people came there. That's what I know. Well, um, the first time I heard about this was in Jared Diamond's book, Collapse. And he has yeah. a great chapter on Greenland. Yeah, I've, I've read that. Yeah, yeah and how the Norse, uh, they established colonies as if they were living in Europe. So they were raising cattle and, and, and building churches and houses out of wood and eventually depleted Greenland of trees and topsoil because the topsoil was so thin. And uh, interestingly, they did not eat fish and that contributed to their eventual demise. They eventually starved and, and, and left. He thought that there was some kind of cultural taboo against eating fish. Yeah. His analysis sort of is relies on that. But there are other there are other factors involved, and, and the, 
you can argue it a bunch of different ways. You know, the, the weather changed some. It got colder. That with that mm-hmm. little ice age thing, that that was that factor. There, there there may have been actual battles with the with the Inuit there, and people got wiped out. There, there could have been a number of things. So it's hard to say exactly. The culture of the Dorset and the Inuit was, I think, they were. Um, there are some significant differences between the two. Yeah. Yeah. And um I think one of them was the presence of kayaks. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure. Well if the Dorsets had kayaks they were they were much more primitive. If they had anything that floated, it wasn't nearly as as well developed as the the later the Thule people's kayaks. So getting back to Paninguak and mm-hmm. Emmanuel Corneliuson. This may be a bit controversial and I usually don't like to introduce controversial topics into, right. into this, but um, you can't help but dealing with dealing with this issue when uh, cultural appropriation comes up. Yeah. But um, from listening to Peningawak, the granddaughter of Emmanuel Cornelison, who, who built Ken Taylor's kayak, upon discovering the whole story of her grandfather building this kayak, which uh, later basically became highly influential in the sport of sea kayaking in Britain. She had this mix of emotions of uh, anger, sadness, pride. What do you think she was angry about? That her her grandfather didn't get any benefit from what he, the influential thing they did. And if he had gotten, say, royalties or something like that, he wouldn't have had to split up his family and have his kids go into foster care. I think that, that would be a main thing her her whole life you know and her parents everything would have been different if he'd been able to support his family and keep them all together yeah and he and he certainly did the, enough work to, to deserve that but that's you know that's why he got got burned on that deal that's not too cool yeah it's it's a tragedy what happened yeah. to him however it's um i don't know whether royalties were something that would have been expected in that situation, do you think that she feels that something was taken from her grandfather? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, whether you want to call it royalties or whatever, but the the recognition and and the the credit and everything, you know, that's. I mean, he 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 totally got the short end of the stick. You know, they just they took his crack and went somewhere else. People made money off of it and and used it without even knowing that he had done anything or, or giving him any sort of credit, whether it was credit by word of mouth or credit by actual money coming to him. Yeah. Well, another way you could, you could see it is he made a deal with Ken Taylor to build this kayak. Yeah. And there weren't any restrictions on what Ken Taylor could do with his kayak after he got it. Maybe there wasn't any belief that a design belonged to anybody. There wasn't any belief in intellectual property rights with regard to yeah. the kayak design. You know, maybe that wasn't even something that people were thinking about at the time. After all, somebody had to teach him how to build his kayak. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm sure he based his kayaks on previous designs. The other thing I, I wanted to mention is that uh, it seems to be the fashion these days to divide the world up into two kinds of people. And that is the uh, oppressor and the oppressed. Mm -hmm. And uh, the oppressed tend to be people of color. 
people who've been colonized. Mm -hmm. But personally, I don't buy into the idea of collective guilt. For instance, mm -hmm. all white people should feel guilty about the genocide of the indigenous people in North America or slavery of Africans who were who brought over into uh, into America. What do you think of the idea of collective guilt? Well, I, I can see the point that even if you didn't carry out any of these acts that happened however long ago before before you were born, you're still getting the, the benefit of all that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, yeah. And, and so you, you, you can't ignore that. And, and just pretending that, that everything's fine now, it doesn't exist anymore, just sort of ignores that fact. And that's what is very annoying and offensive to people who, who do feel that they still suffer from the, the residue of these things. So there's that. Yeah. It's a really complicated, sticky issue. That's, that's, yeah. that's for sure. I thought I'd bring it up because, because I like to hear more from what uh, other people think about the whole issue. Yeah. 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 With, with Emmanuel Cornelius's kayak, even if he didn't get any money out of it, if his name stayed on that kayak, and it was it's not called the answer good, it's called the Corneliuson. No, I got the Corneliuson. You got the Cornelius, yeah. Corneliuson. That, that, like, like a Les Paul guitar. You know, even if Les Paul never got a dime for it or, or died when he was young or something like that, every, every one of those guitars has the name Les Paul right on the top of it, you know? And so he's, he's got credit for that and, and, and his name lives on. And it's, yeah, that, that's, that's what's missing in the Emmanuel Cornelison story, even if there's, there's no money changing hands. Yeah. If anybody is at fault here, it's the people at Valley, Valley Canoe and Kayaks, yeah. who took the design and uh, made their kayak. They had a Secuta. However, they do give Emmanuel Cornelison credit on their website. They also say that if it was not for them recreating the kayak in fiberglass, with a fore and aft watertight compartments, then it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been successful. Sure. So it's like if, if someone took um, Ken Taylor's kayak and reproduced it in skin on frame and seal skin, then it wouldn't have been a popular commercial product. <laughs> you know, so they, they, well, they that, added that's... to it, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it might not have been as popular. It's still, it's still a good design. It still stands on its own. You, 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 I mean, you can't say unequivocally that if they hadn't done that, that cock would never would have gone anywhere because you don't know. Yeah, you just you don't know. Yeah. To put all the guilt on them is, you know, they're 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 manufacturer. They're trying to make money. Somebody had design. They used to design the the guy who, you know, in in that lineage there, there was the, somebody. People were making that versions of that before Valley got to it. So there was a, there was a number of people in the chain involved there, and just you know everyone passing on to the next person. Nobody nobody said, well maybe, maybe we should give more credit to the guy who did this because you don't think about that. You just, here's a kayak, you know, it looks performs well. Let me just use it and I'll pass it on to the next person. I guess my point is, uh, I would be wary of judging the past by the standards of the present. All right. Yeah. I'm sure that for Perninguak, she is really is proud of her what her what her father did. But but as I said, you know, like with Les Paul, Les Paul did not invent the the electric guitar entirely. There are plenty of other cool guitars, very influential. You know, the Fender Stratocaster is a big huge thing that Les Paul had nothing to do with. But the guitar that he designed that did spawn all these Les Pauls, he had he was you know the man behind that. 
And Emmanuel Cornelison didn't invent kayaks and didn't invent the ultimate sea kayak, but the one he did invent was very influential and had, you know, neither of those people are totally responsible for the whole field of, of their specialty, but they, they were just very influential in that field. Yep. Well, all right. Um, so do you have any announcements? So I haven't run out of ideas yet for new podcasts, but I did have an idea for, I, I want to do a, a best of compilation. I mean, I, we're up to, you know, we're 50 episodes now. So to go back and listen to all of them, you really have to be dedicated or I'm, I'm not expecting everybody to do that. So if you're just coming on board more recently, we, we, we want to make a, like a, a best of compilation. Here's some, some key moments in the past 50 episodes of really cool things that happened. Or either I, people that I talked to or things I talked about or, or whatever. So I could go through these things and find my favorite moments, but no, I want to hear from the listeners. What are your favorite moments? So we need everybody to, to tell us what the, the best parts they've, they've heard when, in a little segment. And then we'll, I'll, I'll put together one or maybe two episodes of, of just running through all those. So in one episode, you can hear all these, all your cool favorite pieces rather than have to go back through and find them all. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. It's going to be hard for me to think of uh, what are my favorite. Uh, yeah, well, you can, you can use the index, the index to find things you might have forgotten about where it is. Right? Even if you don't remember where it is, just say, you know, what, that time you said this or that. Does that include the uh, special guest interviews? Oh yeah, well? yeah, yeah. All that, anything, anything that yeah. was, anything that we did. Yeah, any, whatever. Okay, so without further ado, here's number fifty-two on winter camping tricks. Welcome to the Dubcast with Dubside. This is Dubcast number 52. Sleeping warm in the wintertime. And the importance of a good sleeping pad. If you're going to be outside. Music this week comes from a woman in Greenland named Dida. D-I-D-A. And she had a big hit more than 10 years ago called... Akunarit Nuanasut. Well, when I was a kid, I was in the Boy Scouts, and we learned the usual Boy Scout skills of camping and outdoor stuff. And we were going to go camping one time. I think the uh, Scott Master was trying to extend the season a little bit, so we hadn't been into really cold weather camping yet, but we were, we're working on it. So he had a friend with some land way out in the rural areas. I think they, they did deer hunting on this land. There was a hunting lodge there or something. But he had arranged that we would camp on, on a different part of the property, had permission for that. So it was a long couple hours to drive all the way out there. And me not really knowing about warm, <laughs> I wore a winter jacket, so I'm ready for the winter. And under that, I had my regular, you know, like a T-shirt, long sleeve T-shirt maybe, and my cheap little thin pants and crummy socks. <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't know anything about dressing in layers. So that particular weekend, we were going to be there from Friday to Sunday. It got really cold. 
this big temperature, low depression kicked in. And uh, it got down to maybe like, I think in the teens, maybe the single digits at night in, in Fahrenheit. And I remember we would, we, it was cold. And so the, the scoutmaster would tell us, you know, okay, we have things to do now. You guys, you know, we need you guys to go cut some firewood and you guys to go dig a latrine and you guys get the tent set up. And anything he would ask us to do, we, we had a fire made pretty quickly, but we, we would go do just a teeny little token amount of it and just come right back to the fire, like, like moths to the flame. It was just so cold. All you could do was sit there and huddle shivering by the fire. Uh, but eventually, we, we, you know, we got the tents set up and uh, the, the campsite ready to go. So it, and the temperature continued to fall. And then at night, I remember, so I had a sleeping bag. See, the, the Boy Scouts is an interesting uh, mix of socioeconomic backgrounds. So you had guys like me in the solid middle class, you know, going in the Boy Scouts and then we're going to do a camp out and you... Tell your parents, well, they have to, I need a sleeping bag. So they go to the sporting goods store and they buy you a sleeping bag. It's not the, not the high-tech, um, top-of-the-line goose-down one, but, you know, just a decent sleeping bag. There were other kids in our troop who did not have those kind of resources. And so they would show up. Their mother had—it was like some brothers. Their mother had knit—no, knit. She had sewn, like, like quilting kind of thing, a sleeping bag for them. And this worked fine in the summer months, but as we got into the winter, it, it had its shortcomings. So we're, we're, we go to bed at night, um, and it is cold, and we're shivering, and I'm shivering in my, my sleeping bag. And the scoutmaster, you know, he's got to keep track of everybody. And he stayed up all night trying to keep the, the, the guys with the homemade sleeping bags warm. And he did that. This is a, a Boy Scout thing. You take rocks— and you put them in the fire. They, they have to be rocks not from a stream. Otherwise, they'll explode because of the moisture inside them. So you need very dry rocks from, from a dry place. You, put the, you get them really hot in the fire. And then you, you wrap them. You, you want a nice round one. But you, you wrap it in some, you know, newspaper or something like that just to, just to dissipate the heat a little bit. And then you, like you put a, the hot rock in a sleeping bag you know, down by your toes or something. And then it, it keeps the sleeping bag warm. And if, you, if it's really cold, you do multiple rocks in a, in a bag. So he was up all night heating rocks in the fire and then putting them in the, the kids with the homemade sleeping bags to try to keep them warm. And so we, we got up in the morning, and then we had to spend all Saturday. I, I think Saturday, Saturday afternoon it got up to maybe 20 degrees or so. That is 20 degrees Fahrenheit. It was so warm we went out for a hike. <laughs> but later on it got cold again. And I remember it, it was it was kind of brutal. There was one, one kid was crying because it was so cold and the tears were freezing to his face. And, and I, I learned about so, so we were we were being young kids, you know, we were squeamish about things like long underwear, you know, looked like looks like women's clothing, you know, like a leotard thing or something like that. Girls would wear it, but but when it got that cold, I'd have put anything on. I'd have worn stockings. I didn't care. So we we. The, the older scouts who knew how to dress in layers, they didn't, had no problem. They had long underwear on and, and sweaters and things underneath their jacket and coats, and they were quite fine. So we, we learned some, some quick lessons about um, how to dress in layers and not to be worried about long underwear. That was so long ago. I, I, I remember the sleeping bag I had. It wasn't a, a great one, but it, it was warmer than a blanket or two. 
But I think I had a an air mattress, like one of those beach kind of things. You know, you, you blow it up full of air. And I didn't realize back then that an air mattress doesn't really give you any insulation because when you put it on the cold ground, the air inside it, say it's two or three inches thick, there's nothing in there to stop the air from moving. And little air currents develop that are pulling the warm air off your body and exchanging it with the cold air on the ground, and it'll just suck the heat right off you from underneath. And a sleeping bag, like a down bag, you know, lofts up to like two or three inches of insulation. But when you lay on top of it, the, underneath you, it's just compressing it to a to thin, and it doesn't give you any ins- insulation. If you've ever slept on those, those uh, inflatable beds that people buy for, for in case they have guests coming over, it's like a, you blow it up with, a, with an electric pump because it's, it's, you know, it's knee high. It's very thick. Um, and if somebody puts you on one of those in a cold basement, no matter how many blankets you put on top of yourself, you're still really cold because it's sucking the heat from underneath you. you got to put blankets under your body as well as over your body to, to keep warming up on an air mattress like that. Well, so in, in the state-of-the-art of mattresses, sleeping pads, I believe back sometime way back then, the uh, company called Thermarest had the idea of you put some insulation inside an air mattress, and then you could have insulation that will actually spring up and inflate the mattress by itself, self-inflating air mattress, and you turn the little valve shut, or you, you top it off a little bit by blowing into it, and then that insulation inside the air mattress keeps the air from moving around. Now, you can use just a regular piece of foam underneath your works as well, because the air can't move inside the foam, but the foam doesn't, doesn't squeeze down. If you're going to go backpacking, you've got this big, thick foam to, to run around with. So the, the Thermarest was very good in their day because you could roll it up very tightly, squeezing the foam, and then carry that on your, on your backpack that way. But the, the way that worked, you, you couldn't really very well fold them lengthwise down the middle. You just had to roll them straight up. So you had this roll as, as long as the, the width of your, your sleeping area, you know, 20 to 25 inches. But th- those worked quite well. And I had one of those for many, many years. When I first started camping in Philadelphia, I had a, a Thermarest type of pad. It was one that was all black, which made it especially likable for me. The trouble with those is eventually you get some leaks in one of those. And those were made by, you know, two layers of of fabric that are glued around the edges with the foam inside them. And so when you when you keep on folding those, eventually you you get a little weak spot at the at the some of the creases there. And so right on the edge where it was glued, the, the glue comes loose and then it starts to leak and it's hard to patch right on the edge. So that, that one eventually died. And I think I was trying some, I remember Feathercraft, who makes the, the folding kayaks I had. They, they, they had. they had invested in uh, RF welding technology to weld the, the skins on their, their newer models. And so it was easy for them to make dry bags and air mattresses and things because they had the equipment for that. So I got a Feathercraft air mattress, but it was just made, you know, with big air chambers inside. It didn't have any insulation, so it didn't, it didn't work for the wintertime. And so for a while there, I, I forget what I did, but eventually uh, a company came along 
known as EXPED, E-X-P-E-D. And I can see they put a lot of thought into the design of sleeping pads for backpacking and camping. And their innovation was to put down inside the, the air mattress. Um, so rather than a, a thermorest thing with a, with a foam, it was actual down that would provide the insulation so the air wouldn't move around inside of the, the pad. But they, they, in designing that, you can't blow up one of those mattresses with your breath because your breath has moisture in it. And the moisture will, will compromise the down. That's known about sleeping bags. There's ones with natural goose down. If they get wet, they, they have no insulation ability at all. You'll have to dry them out before they, they keep you warm at all. So these X-PED pads, they came up with a different pump system that wouldn't use your, your breath. So the, the first version of it had these little little patch, spark, parts on the pad itself that you would push your hands down alternately, and that would pull air into, the, into a... Uh, intake valve and then you cover it with your hand and push down and you could it took it took about you know five minutes or so with the alternating pushing your hands down to get the thing to inflate but it it inflated without your breath in there and it would keep the the down from getting moist and and that that down insulation would compact far more than foam insulation so you could um, squeeze the air out and then fold them lengthwise in half and then roll them up and you had a, a good deal smaller than a thermal rest type pad to, to for backpacking. Now, when you're kayaking, you don't need something as small. But it's nice to have compact things when you can. And the X-PED pads, they were made with, with welding technology, welded around the edges so that you didn't have the gluing thing that came undone. So, and they, they'd worked on getting very tough material that wasn't too heavy. So it was a very well-designed product. They, they weren't that cheap. But at some point, I decided to get one. And I paid, uh, it was well over $100. It, you know, these, these, as I said, these were not cheap. And so, and I found it to be pretty, a very, fairly well, well-designed product. You know, it, it did keep me warm. It did, you know, the air didn't uh, get chilly underneath you for uh, camping in the wintertime. And I used that for many, many years. I took it to Greenland when I camped out in Greenland. I took it many other places. And... I had this till just recently, this past past summer. I had taken that with me to go to the, up to Michigan and Minnesota, the Midwest area, between two of the kayak events up there. I was camping out with some folks. And having had this pad for quite a while, it was my trusty sleeping pad. And I found one one day, getting up in the morning, you know how you, you know, when you with the old thermorest ones, in the middle of the night you'd you'd find it kind of lumpy, and then you'd think, oh, I hope it doesn't have a leak in it. Maybe I just didn't close the valve tight enough. But then you'd get up and blow some air into it and tighten up again, and then wake up later on. The same thing happens. So I was very disappointed to have a leak. Well, the the XPED one, I I I took care of it. You know, didn't put it on any thorns or anything that would poke a hole in it. But um, so it didn't have a leak. It had a problem where that that it's made with there's maybe like Six six lengthwise tubes that are joined inside, that like with sort of baffles inside, to to form the the shape of it, and the 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 center one, the middle divider inside had come loose, 
and it made the, the two tubes in the middle form into one big tube. It stuck up like a lump in the middle, running down, you know, halfway down the bag. And with my head on that part of the bag, I, my, you know, neck, head wanted to roll to one side or the other, like falling down a hill. So it was, in practical terms, no longer a functioning sleeping pad. If you try to decrease the air a little bit, still the, the, the weight of the rest of your body would push the, the air into that one lump in the middle. So it was, it was a problem. So I contacted the XPED company. And I explained, well, I have this bag, and I told them what the problem was. And they said, talk to a woman on the phone. They had a good customer service operation. And she said, well, those bags, you, you, you look for, there's a lot number on the bag. So I found this lot number, which tells... Tells them when it was when it was produced, or you know, around the time I must have bought it, and so it indicated that I had bought that bag about ten, a little more than ten years ago. And she said, which sounded about right to me, and she said, those bags are, are those those pads. That, um, we have a five-year warranty on those those sleeping pads. So obviously, meaning that mine was out of warranty, which is unfortunate. But then she said. For bags purchased in the U.S., we are honoring the warranty beyond the five-year period. Sounded good to me. So she said, take a photograph of the bag and send us the photo. So I, I did that. I said, man, if, if I get a new bag out of this for nothing, man, these, these people are all right. So she, I, I sent them the photo showing, you know, the, the, the lump in the middle, the way it, it was... Uh, come apart inside and they contacted me back and they said okay we want you to take a permanent marker and we we've, we're giving you this RA number return authorization number we want you to take the marker and write this number on the sleeping pad itself near up near where the valves are write that there take a picture of that and send that to us I did that, and they sent me a brand new sleeping pad. And, and this one, by, by now, I think they sent one even better than the one I had. They, they, the, the models may have changed slightly, but anyway, they, they sent me $250 retail, that thing was. Sent it to me for free. Now, I can stand behind the XPED company. That, that is a together operation. They're honoring their products like that. So I, I have... Good things to say about XPED. And so I still have the old bag. You know, if I sleep with my head at the other end, I could still sort of use it. But that that uh, separation inside is probably going to work its way all the way down to the other end. But, you know, I've got, I've got one sort of functional sleeping pad and another brand new one. So I'm looking pretty good. And in looking at the new design of the new sleeping pad I have from XPED, I see they've made some improvements. So they don't have the pump thing where you have to push with your hands alternately and it takes five minutes or so. They, they, they scrapped that idea. Now they have a system where you take a... It's, it looks like a dry bag, uh, it's, it, but it's very thin, so it's, it's small and light. And you, it's got a little nozzle that comes out the, the bottom of it. And you attach that to the intake of the sleeping pad and then you open up the, the dry bag and sort of get it full of air and then roll the top of it shut and then roll it down. And it squeezes all that air out into through the nozzle and into the bag. And it takes, you know, three, three or four of those um, 
times of squeezing it through the bag, and you get the thing inflated. It, it, it's quite a fi- an efficient system. It's faster than the other way. And it's still, you don't have to breathe into your bag and, and ruin the, the downward moisture. So it's a good, good improvement in the design there. And I see they've also taken the six or eight internal tubes that run the length of the pad. They've, the ones on the outside are a little bit thicker than the ones in the middle. You know, the, the, the one I had that, that went bad, the middle thing became a huge double one because the two got, went together when the, the internal divider failed. But So these, they have the, the ones on the outside are just a little bit taller. And that serves to keep you from rolling off the edge of it, which is a thing that happens. If you, if you don't have your tent on level ground, you tend to, to uh, slide off the bag. And so there, there are various systems people have tried to devise of keeping the, yourself from coming off the pad. But this is, and they're not too thick, so it gets you know, lumpy if you move to one side, but just enough to give you a little bit of an edge to keep you from falling over the, off the, the, the pad. So with one of those X-Ped pads and a good down sleeping bag, which is what I use, I stay fairly warm. And the, the, down, the mummy bags have the, the part that comes all over your head, and you can pull the little string down to tighten it around your face. And they have little baffles or various little Velcro things in there, which is, I, I find you can, you can figure those out on your own pretty well if it's cold enough. You'll, you'll, you're in desperation, you'll find a way how to get those to work properly. If a system like that doesn't keep you warm, the alternative involves external heat, heat beyond what your body makes to get you warm. And th- this is what my, the Scoutmaster did those years ago with that cold camp out with the rocks and the fire thing. Now, I've never gone to that, to that level, but um, maybe it's, that's because I saw what happened in that instance. The uh, Scoutmaster trying so valiantly to keep his scouts with homemade sleeping bags warm, he managed to burn holes. It would singe the, the material because the rock was so hot. Um, it didn't catch on fire, but it just burned. You know, you get up in the morning, there's a bunch of holes in the bottom of the sleeping bag because that's where the rocks were. So it, it's it's tricky to get the, the temperature of the rock just right so it's hot enough to give you some heat, but not so hot that it starts to burn through your, your sleeping bag. And I, I remember reading in the, 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 the Boy Scout handbook uh, that the ultimate in luxury for outdoor wintertime sleeping warm. It described it. and We, we never actually tried this, but the, the idea was it was called the chimney draft bed. And you take some, say, green green twigs, sticks, and things, that, so green so they won't burn too much, um, and you make so like a, a, a platform. You're, you're trying to make like a cot, and then you're, you're putting branches over that, green branches hopefully, so you've got an elevated platform, but just, just a few inches off the ground. But you do this somewhere where you, you've got maybe a trench or a sort of a hillside thing, so you can make a fire and have it sort of diverted so the smoke from the fire goes into the, the channel under where you're sleeping. And so, so it's like you're sleeping on a horizontal chimney. Now, to get this to work right, to get the, the thing to draft properly and the smoke to go where it's supposed to go is... It's not. I, I would imagine that's fraught with errors. It's, it's just not going to work. 
But um, if done properly, that that's supposed to keep you nice and warm. And you can imagine it would. I mean, sleeping on a chimney is, is going to next to a chimney with the heat would, would come off the chimney. The, the trouble being, if you don't have it regulated properly or if it gets a little too hot, something's going to catch on fire and you're going to wake up on fire. Um, so it could be a dangerous thing, which is why you want the, the green twigs underneath. Um, I, I, I can imagine like the high-tech version of that where you have a little temperature sensor things that, that divert the, the smoke away from your, your, your bed if it gets too hot or, you know, some little battery-controlled mechanisms in there. But uh, that's probably not going to happen because the, the modern way, the modern high-tech version of this thing is they have now uh, sleeping, sleeping bags or pads or various things with little heating coils in them that you plug into a USB charger device. You know, like nowadays we have all these, you know, battery module pad power things that'll, you know, charge our cell phones or what have you. So one of those to plug into the your sleeping bag with the coils in it, and then the coils stay warm as long as your, your battery's charged up. And I can see that would that would be the the way with you know using external heat to to keep oneself warm. So there are there are those alternatives. And I will note, I believe it's a Native American technique whereby you make a sizable fire, let it burn down to coals, which is going to take some time, and then you cover it with dirt and sleep on top of that. And the hot coals underneath just keep you warm. But like the tr- chimney draft method, you have to get, get it regulated just right so you don't uh, cause a disaster. And especially the, the chimney draft method, if anybody ever actually did that or if anybody's still trying to do it, um, I am telling you, don't do that, all right? <laughs> it's for liability concerns here. If you want to try that, it's a, you're on your own. I bear no responsibility for any problems that may occur. I can give you one much more effective method for not getting cold in the wintertime, which is to not go camping at all. Stay home and wait till the weather gets warmer. If you follow that advice, that helps to maintain one of the advantages I find for wintertime camping is that those of us who do go camping in the wintertime have far fewer crowds to worry about and often have the beautiful scenery all to ourselves. All right, it's time for the music segment. I want to tell you about a vocalist from Greenland named Dida, and she first came out with a CD about 2008. The opening track was a song called Akunarit Nuanasut, which translates to Good Times, and this became the hit single from that CD, and there was later a club remix of it with the, with the dance beat emphasized. And now there is going to be a dubside version of it, which goes like this.
song's got the hit single kind of quality about it, don't you think? So the chorus, Akunarit Nuanasut Eka Mayuasavaka, I will always remember the good times. And the second line ending with Puyo Naviangilaka, I will never forget the good times. I'll give you the translation of some of it. it says, The good things that happened when we were together, I will keep it in me, I will not let them go. 
Our tears were falling when you and me found out that we could not be together, even though I hope that we can still be good friends. And the chorus, I will always remember the good times, I will never forget the good times. Well, Dida released a follow-up CD after this first one, and the second one was maybe about 10 years ago came out, and I've got a copy of that. It's also a good, good artistic work. But the unfortunate part about this is, as much as I like this song, Akunurit Nuanasut, I cannot tell you how to get a copy of this today. It seems to be out of print. I don't know that there's any YouTube, either video or audio, that has this. And it may be on some other site somewhere on the internet, but uh, I don't know how to find it. But the song is called Akunarit Nuanasut by Dida. And a fine song it is. Coming up in episode 53, well, I've been doing all these special guest interviews and have some more interesting ones to air. So I don't know what this subject for 53 will be yet. I'm still working on that. But I'll tell you what the music will be. I have some more artists from Greenland who sing in English that I haven't emphasized so far because I prefer the Greenlandic stuff. But as I showed you the guy Angu from a while back who sings this stuff in English, I did a song in English there. So I've got another artist who does most of her stuff in English, so I'll probably do another song in English. So you can be ready for that next time on the Dubcast with Dubside.